Down the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, joined in the Scores studio, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What up? Well, there's a lot up for France, not a lot going up for the United States of America when it comes to basketball, because France just stunned. I don't know if we can use the word stunned. The States wasn't that heavy of a favorite. Like, I don't think it was a particularly big surprise at all, um, given the way that the U.S. has been playing, given the construction of their roster, given... You know, that France is a very talented team stocked with NBA players who have been playing together for a very long time. And given that, you know, honestly, like they probably had the best player in this matchup, right? In, in Rudy, Rudy Gobert. Gobert, yeah. And Evan Fournier looked like the second best player in this <laughs> yeah. matchup today. I mean, that was absurd, obviously. But like Gobert, I think in an international setting where you don't have the illegal defense rules and he can really just camp out in the paint, that just amplifies his value. And I. I just don't think, like, especially given the construction of the U.S.'s front court and the fact that they were playing huge portions of this game, basically, with Harrison Barnes at center because Popovich didn't trust any of Brooke Lopez or Miles Turner Brooke Lopez has been or pretty Plumlee. terrible in this tournament. Yeah, he's been useless. And, and I think those three bigs combined to play something like 20 minutes in this game. So... In a weird way, almost wasn't a fair fight. And I guess, like, Donovan Mitchell was good, but Kemba wasn't. And I think, like, if the U.S. was going to win this game, they needed their backcourt to get it done. And it just didn't really happen. Yeah, so if, like the best American and Canadian players, you don't care about the FIBA World Cup and therefore don't know what we're talking about, France beat the U.S. 89-79 in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. The States are out. It ends the States' 58-game international winning streak with NBA players in the mix. I believe that dates back to about 2005, 2006, something like that. Um, so it's been a long time since. Yeah. I think 06. Yeah, I think so. Time. 13 years, you know, almost a decade and a half that the States had not lost a competitive senior men's basketball game, and they did. And it, it wasn't even that close, to be honest. It ended up being a double digit win. France pulled away, like we mentioned. Gobert and Fournier looked like the best players on the court. Uh, tough pill for Miles Turner to swallow, given that yesterday he <laughs> seemed like he was insinuating that he doesn't truly believe Rudy Gobert is the best defensive player in the NBA. And that only some people consider him the defensive player of the year. Well, there's enough of those some people that he's got the hardware. So put up or shut up, Miles Turner. Was Turner like putting his own name forward for that award, or was he just like he he was vouching for Giannis in that case? Because I I can make a strong case for Giannis that I, he should have been the defensive player I, oh, of the year last we year. We could, but, but I don't think that's what Miles Turner was doing. <laughs> I don't think he was randomly making a case for Giannis onto the Kupo. Yeah, Gobert took his lunch in this yeah. game, and anyway, I. I, I just don't think it's such a big deal. I don't think it's a big surprise. I don't particularly care about FIBA. And I think it's, you know, it's great for France. And I, you know, to me, it was always going to be difficult, I think, for, for a U.S. team to match the sort of desire and urgency that another squad might have. I think this just means more to the French national team than it does to the American national team. And as much as you can say that there are some sort of underdogs on that U.S. team that maybe we're out to try and prove something... It's a hastily thrown together team that, you know, for the most part was there because the A and B squad all passed. And I think that's a, you know, it's a different challenge compared to a team like France that, again, has, you know, been playing together for a very long time. I guess not all those guys have been there. I mean, Frank Nilakino was great in this game. Uh, and, you know, just sort of getting big performances out of players like that can often tip the scales. But I don't know. I, I just, like, I, I can't really care all that much yeah the only the last thing i'll add i know you mentioned you know a lot of these international teams just kind of care more 
about something like the FIBA World Cup in the States do. And I agree with that. But I'd also say your second point was was more spot on in that France is just like a better put together team. You know what I mean? That has been playing together. And I think, sure, they probably cared more than the States did. But I also just think they were a better team. Not the more talented team, but... You know, you look at the four teams that made the semis, like France, Argentina, Spain, Australia. Argentina doesn't have an active NBA player right now. They've got 87-year-old Luis Scola leading the way, but they're a team of vets. Listen, man, if Joe Johnson can get a tryout, (laughs) Luis Luis Scola should get. But you know what I mean? Like, that's a veteran team that's been playing together. France, I think it's five NBA players, so a lot of NBA talent, but also a lot of veteran NBA talent and a team that's been playing together. Spain, I think three or four NBA players, but vets like Gasol, who continue to sun young star big men. And... The rest of that roster is all vets that have been playing together. And so you just kind of see this pattern. Like these other international teams are legit teams. They're not just collections of random talent. And in tournaments like this, they're probably going to win. The only the only time the States will remain, you know, maintain that advantage is probably in Olympic years when all the best or most of the best show up. And it kind of doesn't matter how good the other team is because they'll just run them off the floor. Right. I mean, in terms of pure talent, I still think that they were the most talented team in this field. But... You know, to everything that you're saying, like I, I think that that does come into effect, especially given that the international game is a little bit different in terms of the rules and just how the game is played. And I don't know. At the end of the day, like we talked about this a lot about how global the game has become, and I think we talk about that like it's a good thing. It is right. Like the game is growing and and it's spreading its wings into so many different parts of the world. So to see these international teams making this kind of headway and and, and beating an American team that you know, didn't send its best guys. I don't think that we should be surprised by that, nor do I think that, you know, it should be seen as some kind of a crisis. Enough enough about FIBA ball, since we've already both <laughs> Thank said God. we don't care. The main point of this podcast is, you know, camp's open in a week and a half, two weeks. We're going to go through 10, 10 burning questions as camp's open in a couple weeks. But before we do that, is there anything else news-wise that you'd want to touch on? Uh, I think I'm good. I mean, we, do we want to talk about this headband thing? I mean... Look, yeah, I guess, but I'm confused about the safety issue. Like, at first, I was going to go on a Twitter rant about how stupid this is and, like, just let these players have fun. Like, the fans, a lot of fans seem to think it was kind of like a fun, cool new look. The players seemed to enjoy it. There was a lot of jokes. And for the league that's tailor-made for the social media generation, it seemed perfect. You know, if they legitimately found a safety issue, obviously, whatever. It doesn't affect our viewing pleasure of, of basketball at all. But at the same time, if... If they were just kind of looking for an excuse to not allow these because whether it's, you know, they're not sponsored and branded yet or, I don't know, they don't think it's professional. Like, if it's if it's one of those reasons and they're just using safety as a scapegoat, then that's pretty annoying. I just can't figure out what the reason would really be and why they would be so up in arms about this. Like, it just... I don't know. I don't really get it. And I think the NBA has been so good over the past few years about promoting individualism and and kind of freedom of expression where leagues like major league baseball and the nfl have not been so progressive so to see something like this was kind of disappointing and i don't know i guess might be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they have their reasons but i just i I can't figure out one so it's it's hard to see yep all right let's let's get to the burning questions and it's actually legitimately chilly in this in this studio so let's (laughs) let's heat it up in here with some burning questions. You want to start or I'll start? Uh, you can start. All right. Let's start. I mean, I, I don't know if we're going in any particular order here, but... No. Well, we should say... So we split it up between the conferences. I got the Eastern Conference and you got the West. Yeah. So hit me with your first burning question from the West. My first burning question is completely centered around LeBron James's health 
and durability, you could mm. say. Last year could have just been a blip on the radar, right? This robotically durable superstar has one major injury. He'll bounce back. It's fine. If that's the case, we know the Lakers will be fine. But LeBron James is in his mid-30s now. He's played obscene amount of minutes in the NBA between the regular season and playoffs over the last decade and a half. At some point, it will not be a blip on the radar, and it will just be LeBron James' body slowly starting to break down because he is a human being, despite, you know, the evidence to the contrary. For me, I know it's kind of an arbitrary number. I'm looking in, like, the 2,500-minute range. Can LeBron James give the Lakers 2,500 regular season minutes? And that sounds like a lot. You know, usually good NBA players, once you go over 2,000 minutes, that's, like, a good chunk of of time superstars are between 2500 and 3000 mm-hmm. for lebron 3000 plus minutes was pretty standard for his career and then even if you want to dip down to 2500 the only two years in his career other than last season that he didn't reach 2500 minutes in a season the lockout year yep. which obviously and then if you remember his first year back in cleveland when he I basically do. took two weeks off and chilled in miami Even that year, he still got to like 2493, so basically 2500 minutes, okay? The Lakers last year, as much as I made fun of them all year, as much of a gong show as they were, their plus minus per 100 possessions with LeBron James on the floor would have ranked about 12th in the NBA. Now, that's not, you know, that's not unbelievable. It's not a championship contender, but it's better than average, and it would have been a playoff team in the Western Conference. That was without Anthony Davis. So if LeBron James, you know, is even 80% of what he was durability-wise and can get into that 2,500-minute range with Anthony Davis as a running I think the Lakers will be fine, and they're, they're going to be a championship contender. But that, to me, is a big if, because I don't know if we can just assume that based on what we saw last year, based on his age, based on the mileage and all that. I'm not saying, like, throw out last year, but it was kind of a freak injury and look you know when you're that old and you have that many miles on your body those kind of freak injuries are more likely so it's not like that doesn't exist in a vacuum but I think basically by the end of that season he was mailing it in the team plainly wasn't going anywhere it was dysfunctional in the locker room and on the court and I just don't know how much we ought to look at that as a precedent and I think You know, we've mentioned this before, but it is worth reiterating, like, he had a whole summer off, summer and spring, you know, like he didn't play playoff basketball for the first time in, what, 14 years? Playoff basketball? Yeah, it was the first time in 14 years, I think, 2005 would have been the last time. Yeah, 2005 or 2006, maybe? No, because 2006, he made, that was his first playoff year, and he made the second round, Right, so since 2005. Yeah. So... I, you know, I, like, I think that has a chance to, to to help him in a way in terms of just kind of like how fresh he comes into the season. Obviously, having Anthony Davis there is going to make a big difference in terms of how they can scale back his workload. And I don't know. I still see some issues there because as much as Anthony Davis is an unbelievable player who can maybe help spell LeBron and give him a a little bit more rest than he's had in the past. There still is no like primary ball handler on this team that's going to be able to keep the ship afloat when LeBron is resting. That's my big concern about this squad is like they just do not have any kind of point guard play. You know, really it's like Rajon Rondo and and who else is playing on the ball? Like I I just, the the sort of playmaking responsibility that LeBron is going to have to shoulder is the thing that would make me concerned because the minutes, you know, whatever they happen to be, however many minutes he's playing, however many games he winds up playing, 
it's like the workload that he's carrying during those minutes, I guess, is what would give me some pause because I, I don't see a way around him dominating the ball, having to soak up just a ton of possessions. And I mean, yes, you know, the, there are ways that he can kind of um, manage his own workload in the flow of a game. Uh, he'll take some possessions off when he just sort of, you know, allows AD to go one on one. He'll take a lot of defensive possessions off, but I guess I just like kind of have to wait and see, you know, what it looks like and if anybody can can step up and, and take on some of that ball handling responsibility. What's your first burning question if we move east? My first burning question in the east is how is Philly's offense and specifically their half court offense going to function? Because this is a weird roster with. I think a glaring lack of a primary creator slash ball handler. And, you know, they've gotten by in the last couple of years without that because of the sort of off ball creation that they had from JJ Redick. And he gone, <laughs> he's gone. And I don't know that they really have a way to replace what he gave them. And like, I don't know that there's anybody who's going to be able to replicate, replicate the, the dribble handoff magic that he and Embiid made the last couple seasons. I assume they're, you know, they're going to kind of try and keep shoehorning Ben Simmons into this point guard role. But I've said this before. I just don't see him as a point guard. I, oh, I, you're, you're not convinced by the summer <laughs> jumpers he's making in an empty gym somewhere. Yeah. Um, so that's my big question, and I don't know yeah, if you want to chime in on what you think it's going to look like, where you think they might struggle, how you think they might get around those flaws. I mean, I, I don't see them really getting around those flaws. I think we talked about this back in early July when all the movement in the NBA first happened, and we talked about this roster, and I thought, like, defensively, <laughs> looks great. Yeah. Offensively, I have so many questions. I mean, this is a, a team that kind of already operated counter to the way the NBA had been going. You know, they didn't run a lot of pick and rolls. Sure, they got a lot of off-ball creation from J.J. Redick, but that's gone now. And they still probably can't run a lot of pick and rolls because Ben Simmons ain't doing that. I don't see how their offense is going to function at a high enough level to win at the level they want to win at. Because talent-wise, sure, they can compete for a championship in this wide-open race. But they I don't think they have that two-way balance because their offense just doesn't make any sense to me between the roster and the actual way it functions. I guess that would be my answer to your question. I, I don't see a way that it works like this. Real quick, because we didn't mention it when we were saying, is there any news to get to? Mike Scott getting in a fight with, <laughs> with Eagles fans. We should, we should at least mention that. Mike Scott showed up to an Eagles game in a Redskins yeah. jersey. And, uh, yeah, wasn't, uh, wasn't a popular guy <laughs> in the tailgate. And, you know, in his own words, well, it was about the team, but I guess you can change it to him. He ain't no bitch. So if you come at Mike Scott, I don't think he cares where he is. He's probably throwing down with you, and that's not a good idea because Mike Scott is a large athletic man that will do some damage. Yeah. I mean, if you needed any more evidence that Philadelphia is a insane sports town, attacking one of their own at a football game, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, truly ridiculous, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> Not a burning question, just a... A burning observation. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, I guess... So, I mean, Horford has a chance to be a sort of connector for them offensively, just in the way that he can pass and screen. But you don't really want him, like, handling the ball up top. And a big part of his offensive value comes in his ability to kind of stretch out opposing big men and, like, run, pick, and pop. Who's running that pick and pop with him? I mean, Tobias Harris, I guess, could... 
he brings, I think, the, you know, the, the sort of shooting threat that could make that a difficult proposition for a defense. But is he, you know, going to be able to make that pocket pass? And kind of same thing with Josh Richardson, who is a good shooter, not a great one, and, you know, particularly not a great shooter off of the dribble. And then there's Simmons, who there's maybe a world in which that can work because Simmons can put so much pressure on the rim and then you have Horford popping and, you know, pulling the big guy away. But if the defender's just going under the screen against Simmons, I just, I don't know that it necessarily works. So... I don't know. I think especially come playoff time in the half court, their late game offense is going to be an issue. And I don't know. I guess to me, the one interesting way that they might be able to scheme around it is if Embiid is just so good that they can run their late game offense through him, just post him up, dump the ball down, and either let him go one-on-one or draw a double team and I think, you know, he's a pretty solid passer, not an excellent passer yet, but maybe that's an area of his game that he improves this year to the point that doubling him becomes a really dangerous proposition. And maybe in that case, we start to see like Ben Simmons not be on the floor in crunch time if he continues to just be like a total non-shooting threat. Because if you space the floor with four shooters around Embiid, I think you can still carve out like a functional late game offense around just kind of posting him up and, and seeing if he can score one on one or draw double teams or get fouled. And maybe that negates the need to have, you know, a Jimmy Butler type, a guy who is your crunch time ball handler, the guy who, you know, is running pick and roll late in the game or is running isolation late in the game. Like maybe it's just Embiid. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. And, you know, we saw at times last year, including in the playoffs at certain points when Joel Embiid just was flat out that good and that much better than anyone else on the court that it almost didn't matter that the Sixers weren't running much functional things around them. I just, I'd be concerned if that's kind of like your fallback. You know, if that if that's kind of like, well, at the end of the day, we haven't beaten, it's fine. Because yeah, as talented as he is, it's still hard in 2019, 2020 for a big man to be that, you know, difference maker come April, May, and June. And again, I just go back to how many times Jimmy Butler bailed them out in the yeah. playoffs, including in that series against Toronto, and he's gone. And I get that Tobias Harris can fill some of that role, but I think there's a reason why when the lights came on last spring, Jimmy Butler was taking that torch and running with it, and Tobias Harris wasn't. And I'd be concerned if I was the Sixers and the fans, not just because of Mike Scott. Yeah, I'd be a little concerned with how important Tobias Harris is to this team exactly. right now. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's go back to the West. For me, big question, I think for a lot of people is how in the holy hell will Mike D'Antoni and the Houston Rockets manage and juggle the usage rates and the minutes of James Harden and Russell Westbrook? Mike D'Antoni staggered a lot of the minutes between James Harden and Chris Paul in their couple of years together. It worked well. It also worked well when they were on the floor together because Chris Paul was not as much of a score first guard as Russell Westbrook clearly and when he did want to be score first and think scoring he was a much more efficient scorer than Russell Westbrook and could play off the ball and could play off the ball because he can shoot but again even in isolation like you go back to last last season when the Rockets were so so good and everyone thought it might not work because you know you had these two kind of ball dominant players but they were both so damn good and so damn efficient in isolation that it almost didn't matter Russell Westbrook may like isolation but he's not necessarily good at it you know I Back when I wrote about this deal, I went back and looked at, you know, some numbers. Chris Paul's, if you just look at the last two seasons while Chris Paul's with the Rockets and and Harden's most prolific two seasons, basically. Chris Paul's average usage rate is about 23.5%. Russell Westbrook's is 32.5%. 
Chris Paul's true shooting percentage is over 58. Russell Westbrook's barely over 51. And in isolation, Chris Paul produces more than a point per possession. It's 1.01, which is slightly above average for isolation. Russell Westbrook's down at 0.79. And I got news for you, Houston. He's going to be running a lot of isolations despite those numbers. And when you've got James Harden, who might arguably be the best, like one of the best, not that's not even an argument. Whether he's the best or not is an argument. But one of the best isolation scores, one of the most prolific offensive players that this game has ever seen, you're going to be taking the ball out of his hands to let Russell Westbrook do what he does. I still don't understand how it's going to work. And not just how it's going to work, I don't understand how they can insert Russell Westbrook into this mix without taking at least something away from James Harden's greatness. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that that's my big question here. How does Mike D'Antoni do it? How does he manage the minutes? How does he manage the usage in a way so that both these guys can get theirs without it taking away from Harden in particular? A heavy stagger for starters. Um, and, you know, look, those guys are going to start games together. They're going to close games together. But I think we'll see something pretty similar to what happened with James Harden and Chris Paul where, you know, I don't know about the majority of the time that Westbrook's on the floor, but maybe half of the time that he's on the floor, he's on the floor without Harden. And they're basically trying to replicate the offensive formula that they run when Harden is out there, which is that Westbrook is controlling the ball. He is surrounded by shooters and that leaves the lane you know spaced out enough to allow him to get to the rim and finish and it you know it gives him the sort of freedom to probe and attack and and sling kick out passes which is something that he is very very good at I think it can definitely work I guess my concern you know when they're on the floor together Obviously, there's what you mentioned offensively, like you're taking the ball out of Harden's hands. I don't know that that's the worst thing in the world. I do think, and this is just at this point in time, the reality of Russell Westbrook. We've seen it year after year after year. I, any team that he is on sort of gets consumed by him and his style of play. And, you know, a big reason for that is that he just hasn't ever really found that off-ball utility. He hasn't been engaged or active as a cutter Obviously, he doesn't have the sort of off-ball gravity because of his sort of wonky jump shot. And, you know, that's why in Oklahoma City, it just like it wound up with him controlling the offense and Durant playing off-ball more of the time because it didn't make as much sense to do it the other way around. And I feel like it's kind of going to be the same thing for Houston where when they're on the floor together, like, yeah, Harden will control the ball some. Um, but Westbrook being out there is going to make things a little bit more difficult for him because there's going to be another defender lurching into the paint, you know, ready to kind of double-team Harden wherever he goes. I think it's going to make more sense for Westbrook to be controlling the ball and Harden to be playing off of the ball, and that's going to be an an adjustment for Harden, obviously, because, um, like, I'd have to go and look. I haven't looked at it in a while, but it was something like over 90% of the threes that he took last season were off of the dribble. They're unassisted, yeah. So he's going to have to get used to shooting more spot-ups. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I mean, for the most part, you know, almost every NBA player is better at stationary threes than there are at off-the-dribble threes. And there are exceptions to that. And, you know, maybe it'll take some getting used to for Harden to to shoot more catch-and-shoot. But I I don't think that it won't work. I guess defensively is where I would see it as being more of a concern. Because having those two guys on the floor together in the backcourt could be pretty tenuous. What's uh, what's your next East burning question? My next East burning question is, 
what will Victor Oladipo look like when he comes back? Um, because to me, if he comes back looking like... Forget even the player he was two seasons ago when, to me, he was a top 12 player in the NBA. I think he took a step back last season, even before the injury. If he comes back looking like the player he was last season, even, I think this team can be really, really good, and I think this roster makes a ton of sense. If he is a clear cut below that level, suddenly the roster doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and suddenly I'd be a little bit worried about this team, and I think if that's the case they're going to struggle specifically at the offensive end and run into the, like, the same sort of problems with shot creation that they had when he went out last year. Maybe not quite as glaring with Brogdon there and also Jeremy Lamb, um, but then also losing Bogdanovich hurts. I just... They need him to be, you know, I think approaching the level that he was at in order to be, I think, a factor in the East this coming season. And I just don't know. Like, that injury that he suffered is like... I think it's a rare one. I don't know what kind of history there is of players coming back from that injury, but I think it's a big question mark right now. I completely agree with you. I've seen some people talk about the Pacers as this like low-key contender in the East based on all the movement, but I think that's a huge assumption that Oladipo gets back to what he was. Not just like not what he was this past season, but like you mentioned, two seasons ago. It had already seemed like he took a bit of a step back from that unbelievable season he had had. And I look at the rest of this roster, I think we both love Brogdon's game and his efficiency and all that and the way he kind of is a floor general out there. Losing Bogdanovich was huge. Like, when you're looking at like the non-all-star level, that's one of the biggest losses of the offseason. Yep. Just look at his creation in that series against Boston and basically down the stretch of the season. If they didn't have him without Oladipo, like, they'd be completely lost. And so I think they're going to have issues scoring the ball. They'll still be solid defensively. But, you know, if Oladipo is going to get back to what he was, I definitely don't think he's going to do that immediately after coming back from this injury. It might take until next season to see that. And anything less than that, quite frankly, this Pacers team to me looks like a 500 to slightly above 500 team. Like, I don't think this team's ripping off 50 wins all of a sudden and pushing the Bucks and Sixers in the East. I fully agree. And I think it's worth noting, too, as much as I think they'll need Oladipo and his off-the-dribble creation offensively, they also need him as a point-of-attack defender because, like, Brogdon is solid, not exceptional. I think Lamb is average at best. Like, without... Thad Young there, um, and I know they have Turner there on the back line, and that helps, but I think you saw after Oladipo went out, Turner kind of fell off at the defensive end as well, and I think there was just maybe a little bit too much strain on him because the point of attack defense wasn't quite as stout as it had been. And, you know, they need Oladipo, I think, to force turnovers. Another thing that, you know, they don't have, you know, what they lost in Thad Young. So I think, you know, at both ends of the floor, they really need him to be something approximating the guy that he's been the last couple of seasons. And I just I don't know if that's going to be the case. And if it's not the case, I worry a little bit about this team. Yeah, I agree. you have anything else to add? I have, a, I have a bonus question okay. about the Pacers, which is, um, will one of Turner or Sabonis get traded this season? And which one of them has more trade value to you? Yeah, let's get nuts. I'm going to say yes. One of them will <laughs> okay. get... Man, in terms of which one has more trade, I'm looking at the contracts now. So Turner's locked in at basically $18 million a year. Yeah, very like through, a, a, a tradable 20, deal for sure. 23 for sure. Sabonis will be an RFA next summer. Yeah. Miles Turner probably has more trade value just based on that, right? Like there's more team control long term. If a team's confident that they can take on Sabonis and 
keep him long term, you can make the argument he probably projects as the better player long term. I, I feel like if, if one of them gets dealt, I feel like it's Turner just because of that team control. Mm-hmm. There's too many question marks with Sabonis' future. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree that I, th- I think Sabonis has a brighter long term outlook. Uh, Turner's a fantastic defensive player with unbelievable tools. He has a three-point range that Sabonis doesn't have. I just I just love Sabonis' skills, like his footwork, the way that he can pass, how physical he is, like he can score on the block. Offensively, he's a way more polished player, and I think he showed a lot of great strides defensively last season too. So if I were the Pacers, I think he's the guy that I would prefer to hold on to. It sounds like Sabonis is going to start at the four this season, and I'm very interested to see how that goes because um, offensively, it was a disaster last season, and they survived those minutes because they were so good defensively, but um, again, I just I don't know long-term whether that's going to be viable, and I think you know to balance their roster, this team's pretty light on wings, like three, threes and fours specifically, and I think it might behoove them to... Uh, to make a swap there that helps balance their roster. Yeah, and that's you know another reason why I think it makes more sense to trade Turner too because with the m- extra money on his deal, in terms of salary matching, you're probably right. getting a couple pieces back and right. they probably won't, you know, individually, neither player you get back will be as good as Miles Turner probably, but if you can turn Miles Turner into a couple solid rotation forwards, even a couple, right? And now you have a more balanced roster when Oladipo eventually gets back. And if you're trading Turner, you're probably committing to Sabonis long-term, right? We're assuming that. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, if you have a roster where you're looking at Brogdon, Oladipo, Sabonis, TJ Warren, a couple more rotation forwards, like that is a team that in the East, if they stay healthy, could be a factor and a a lot more balanced than the roster is right now. Yeah, so I don't know, actually, if if that trade, if I see that trade happening this season, but... um, Definitely, if I was you know compiling a list of potential trade candidates for the coming year, either of those guys, I think, would be on that list and something I think the whole league will be watching. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Go back out west now, and I'll bring up my next burning question, and that is relating to Kawhi Leonard and how much floor time he sees this season. And uh, different than the LeBron question I asked, because LeBron for me was more about actual health and durability. I know Kawhi's leg was a little wonky in the playoffs, but for the most part, you know, he's an extra year removed now from that quad issue. I don't think health is as much of a concern as it was last year for Kawhi, or at least should be as much of a concern. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I mean, I'm not putting it past Kawhi and the Clippers to load manage him even if he's not necessarily dealing with the same injury issues he had last year and then even if you just look at Kawhi's career the guy's never played more than 74 games in a season he's only even cracked a 70 game barrier twice okay in his eight-year career we saw this past season that it doesn't really matter come the spring as long as you have a healthy Kawhi Leonard in April May and June you might have the best player in the world but the big difference is in the Western Conference in the Western Conference you're 
even for the best teams, your stranglehold on a top seed is a lot more precarious than it is in the Eastern Conference. Mm-hmm. The Toronto Raptors could afford Kawhi Leonard missing a quarter of the season and they still finished with a top two seed in the East last year. If Kawhi Leonard misses even 15 games for the Clippers in that conference, I don't know that they're getting a top two seed. And then all of a sudden there's all these like, you know, snowball effect things that start happening. If you're the Clippers and you end up in like the four or five seed, what if you get to play the Lakers in the first round? I'm not saying they can't beat them, but is that really the path you want to take to a championship? Like, you know what I mean? It's this kind of snowball effect where I just think as much as some people are saying, okay, it doesn't matter. We saw last year, you just need a healthy Kawhi in the spring. Sure, but you also need somewhat of an advantage when it comes to seeding and home court and all that and matchups in the playoffs, especially in the West. And if they're going to load manage Kawhi to a point where that that's the sacrifice they're making, I don't know if it's worth it. Who do you think, like if they got matched up with in the first round, they'd be like, oh man, we're screwed. I can't I'm, believe we got this matchup. No, I'm not saying they'd be screwed, but like... Who do you think they would be like really unhappy to see in the first round? The Lakers. Round? Yeah, yeah, I think they're the better team than the Lakers, but I still, if if you're basically championship or bust, which is what the Clippers are, mm-hmm. okay, given everything they've given up, yeah, you don't want to play LeBron James and Andy Davis in the first friggin' round. Okay, any other team, even Houston, like I I think they'd beat Houston, but again, like, do you want to have to deal with James Harden, and Russell Westbrook in the first round? You know what I mean? Like, those are teams that you should deal with like later. I, I just. I don't think it's conducive to a deep run and winning a championship to have to like slog it out in the first round, especially in the West. See, I think any of those teams would be way more upset to see the Clippers in the first round. Than the Clippers would be to see. Like, I don't think the Clippers are sweating seeing the Rockets in the first round. I really don't. If they're healthy, um, if the Clippers are, so I guess to me it's like, and maybe I agree with you about them not wanting to see the Lakers in the first round. But like, there are ways to maneuver around that matchup if if they really want to avoid it. And, yeah, I agree about it being sort of more precarious to do that in the West because, you know, you always risk, you know, not just the playoff seating, but kind of fall- falling out of the playoff picture altogether just given the, the depth of talent and the number of good teams there are in that conference right now. But I guess the question that's tied to this question is how many games is Paul George going to play and how healthy is Paul George going to be when he comes back from two shoulder surgeries? Because I think... You know, Kawhi and the Clippers supporting cast minus Paul George. Like, uh, how good is that team? I mean, they're all right. Yeah. But um, I don't think they're anything special. Like, I I think, like, they really need both of those guys healthy and humming for that team to reach, um, you know, championship caliber. So... I guess the priority has to be to just have both of those guys healthy going into the playoffs. And it's, you know, it's going to be a tough balance, I guess, you know, because they have to put some focus on the regular season, like you said. I guess my answer would be I expect him to land somewhere in the range that he was in last season. Maybe he plays a few more games, and there are fewer back-to-backs this year, so that helps. So I guess I'd peg him at, like, 65 games. What do you think? I, I agree, but, yeah, my question is, you know, if Kawhi Leonard misses 17 games, how high can the Clippers really finish in the mm-hmm. West? And it's not just like, not even just the matchups and home court for the Clippers. It's still like home court doesn't really, like the Clippers are barely have a home court advantage. Okay. But there's still 
a reason why you don't want to say open in Denver in the playoffs, right? The altitude. You don't want to open in Utah. It's a tough mm. place to play. Like they'd win those series, but you know what I mean? That's you don't want to start on the road in Utah to start the playoffs when you're championship or bust. Right. Yeah. And and I don't know that they can avoid a situation like that if Kawhi Leonard's missing seventeen games. So yeah, I mean, so what do you think? You think they they push him a little bit harder? I think they do. Yeah, I think they do. I'm not saying he's gonna play like 78 games, but yeah. I think I think because the Clippers need him to, we're about to see the third time in his career he cracks the 70 game barrier. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm quite there. I think again, it it depends so much on George um, because if he comes back and he's playing like the MVP caliber player he was last season, then they can definitely ride out some Kawhi absences, especially considering like there are a handful of teams that are just going to be really bad, especially in the East. Like at the bottom of the Eastern conference, there's five teams that are going to suck. And those are kind of write off games where if, you know, they, they can rest one of the guys and play the other one and reasonably expect to win. So there are ways to finagle it. Like, you know, you, you play the matchups and I think you can still find a way to sit them out 15, 17 games, something like that and come out of it. Okay. Um, because there is still, you know, a decent amount of talent on the, on the rest of the roster. It's just like defensively, I don't trust it so much, um, you know, without one of Kawhi or PG there or both of them out of the lineup, but like, um, you know, between Lou and Montrez Harrell and, um, Shamit, like all those guys, like, I think they'll still be a, a, a team that's capable of beating the dregs of the East on the right night. Uh, back to the East. I'm going to say... My third burning question is, how many of the Raptors' veteran expiring guys finish the season with the team? And I'm talking mainly about Lowry, Gasol, and Ibaka here. All three. Really? Yeah, I don't think they trade any of them. Interesting. Okay. Uh, um, so here, these are my sort of like three sub-questions for this question. Um, one is, do those guys have value to the Raptors beyond this season? Will the Raptors be good enough this season to justify holding on to them? And what kind of trade value do they even have? Yeah. Um, so value to the Raptors beyond this season, I think Kyle Lowry still does. Um, he might not even be an all-star this season. If if he is, it's probably the last year he's an all-star. But I think, I think there will be value for a good shooting, brilliant point guard um, on the court and if the Raptors plan to continue to contend whether you know even if it's contend with a younger core I still think there will be value in having a a veteran like Kyle Lowry around I also think you know in terms of sentimentality I think he means something to the organization I think Masai Ujiri recognizes that I think there would be some sort of mutual interest there in making sure this guy finishes career his career as a Raptor so I think if any of those three guys are going to be on this team next season, it would be Lowry. Um, trade value-wise, I don't know how much value these guys will have because we kind of got to see how they start the season and also what the landscape looks like, right? Like, if Marcus Gasol still looks like the player defensively, at least, that we saw in the playoffs last year, forget the offensive side, because I've mentioned I do think he'll have a better offensive season this year with the Raptors. Than he, he has did. to. <laughs> he has to, right? And we like the first half of the year with Memphis, he was – Basically, what a seventeen point a game guy again is like the number one option. Like it's still there. It's not like for like the worst offense in the league, but that's neither but, here nor there. But individually, he was producing at like a pretty efficient rate. Like, and yeah, that was as the number one option on a pretty bad team. If he's like the number three option, I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, if there's a, you know if the Raptors aren't doing well, but Gasol is that player still, and there is a team like the Raptors last year who needs that kind of finishing piece of this vet big man. You know, the value will be there. If not, it won't. So the value question's hard to answer. Um, but yeah, I, the question about whether the Raptors will be good enough to justify keeping them, I do think they will be. I think I still think they're the third best team in the East. Um, you know, if they're relatively healthy. I don't think anyone other than Milwaukee and Philly is beating this team in the playoffs either. Like, I I still think they're that good. And I think, you know, if they're the three seed as the defending champions or even in that range and they're the defending champions and the East still looks relatively wide open, like, is Masai Ujiri really going to punt on at least defending the conference crown? Like, I, I could understand why if you're just looking at the future, but I think... I think winning that title did change a lot of things, and it didn't change it in the sense of like, well, we won one now, we can kind of frig off. I think it's the opposite. We won one now. We have some pride that we want to defend this thing. If we're 25 and 30, sure, we have to sell off. But if we're 38 and 23, we're not touching these guys. Yeah, no, I fully agree that if if they are, and I'd peg them, you know, as a top four team, number three, possibly, um, you know, depending on, on what we see from Boston, I guess, and how again to 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 speak to our previous question about how Oladipo looks when he comes back but yeah they look to me on paper like a top 4 team i think defensively they're still going to be a monster offensively i have some concerns but uh yeah i mean like if they are a top 4 team then that is absolutely good enough to justify holding on to those guys through the end of the season and i don't know like is if they aren't if they're 500 or slightly below 500 come the new year come trade deadline is there a first round pick out there for one of these guys for Lowry maybe I mean he's the only guy I think who, who I could see bringing back a first round pick um what do you think and probably not other than Lowry yeah I don't think there is a first rounder to be had for these guys and that's another reason too why I think they end up keeping them you know a lot of people get so caught up and like well if you're gonna lose them for nothing you gotta trade them and get something for them yeah I agree with that when we're talking like stars and superstars that yeah. you absolutely need to recoup value for but an expiring veteran, you know, that's no longer an all-star, like, well, you're going to punt on the season to get maybe a first-rounder and, like, a ninth man. Like, you know what I mean? There's just, that's not worth it to me. Right. Well, and that's sort of why, like, all these questions kind of inform the others, right? Like, how good are the Raptors? What is the trade value like for these guys? And, um, you know, for the Raptors front office, like, if they're looking toward the future, are they thinking, hey, we want Kyle Lowry here for another two years after this one? I mean, this guy is going to turn 34 this season, and he's a five foot eleven point guard. Uh, the aging curve for players like that is not super friendly, and, you know, we saw, obviously, a fantastic playoff run from him, but also some age-related dec- decline throughout the season. I mean, he had his lowest true shooting percentage in, I think, five years. So... I don't know. It might make sense for them to try and recoup some value if the team isn't as competitive as we expect them to be. And I think there are a lot of really good teams in the league this year that could really use a point guard. So to me, he should be able to bring back a first rounder. And whether that's enough uh, to kind of whet the Raptors' appetite is something I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right, let's head back west. Where will Chris Paul land? Chris Paul's landing spot. Big burning question. And not just in the West, really in the league because mm-hmm. he doesn't have to stay in the West. Um, you know, he, he fell off last year, obviously. Health-wise, always a concern with Chris Paul. But there are still elite skills in there, especially as a Absolutely. playmaker that can swing a season, a playoff series, a championship if he lands on the right team. You know, we've talked before about how even the Thunder themselves like could be better 
than people think if they actually kept this band together and get out. Like, between Chris Paul, Gallo, Steven Adams, who am I missing? I guess that's <laughs> You're yeah. not missing much. Yeah. I mean, Shea. Yeah, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, like, yeah. taking a step as a, a second-year player. Yeah. I don't know. I, that team's not winning anything of significance, but... They could be a 500 they, team, They sure. could, be, yeah, and they could maybe flirt with the last playoff spot in the West. Mm-hmm. So, there's that. I mean, if, if the Thunder are surprisingly competitive in that market where, you know, they haven't really experienced losing since their first year there, do they maybe consider keeping Chris Paul? Like, I don't know. And then if they're not, does a team emerge that clearly needs a point? Like, I don't know. Is there a path to get Chris Paul on the Lakers somehow? Probably not, contract-wise. But if there is, I'm sure LeBron James will be knocking that door down. Like, where Chris Paul lands could very well swing this season and could swing this guy's career trajectory and how we remember him. Not the two of us remember him because we'll remember him as a great player, but how a lot of people remember him. So for me, it's a burning question, not just for the Thunder um, and not just for the NBA, but for Chris Paul himself. Right. I The Lakers, I just don't think have the prospect capital yeah. to get this done. I mean, Kuzma's really the only guy. So you're thinking like Kuzma plus salary filler... Are the Lakers even willing to do that after, you know, Kuzma was basically the guy they made a sticking point in the Anthony Davis deal. He was the guy they wanted to hold on to. Are they going to now be willing to trade him for a broken down Chris Paul when he's really like their only young player of note? It's tough to see. Um, Minnesota is a team I would keep my eye on. Like they've needed a point guard since forever. And I think Chris Paul and Carl Anthony Towns could be pretty special offensively. And they have the contract to send back to make it work. Uh, I guess it's a question of whether the Thunder would feel good about swapping out Chris Paul's contract for Andrew Wiggins' contract. And I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I, I think that'd be a pretty awesome combination, actually, Chris Paul and Carl Anthony Towns. But I have a feeling, even though he doesn't have a no-trade clause, Chris Paul and his representation would do everything within their power to make sure he's not going to Minnesota. What is within their power? They don't have leverage in this situation. Like, that's... It's really, like, that's the interesting kind of downside, I guess, if you could say that it is a downside, to signing these really lucrative deals late in a player's career is that you do lose that power. You know, you don't have a no-trade clause. Then suddenly it's like... If your contract is as difficult to move as Chris Paul's appears to be you don't really get to have a say in where you go. And that's why he's stranded in OKC right now. Yeah, that's true. And they're going to trade him to wherever they want to trade him to, whatever they feel like they can get back, whatever package they like the best. It's not going to be up to him. And so I think, you know, Minnesota is a realistic landing spot, I think. Um, Orlando is another one. And I have a burning question in the Eastern Conference that we'll get to shortly. But... That's a team that could very obviously use a point guard upgrade. And I think they could cobble together the salaries to make that work. Miami. Still think Miami is in the mix. Yeah. Miami. I don't, I don't think it moves the needle that much. Like, no, but like that, yeah, that's definitely a team that, that has a need. Um, and, you know, you talk all the time about Pat Riley's obsession with star power. Chris Paul, still a brand name, you know, despite being on the downside of his career. Um, and then Philly and Milwaukee, uh, which. That would be a roll of the dice, but like those two teams, this is a two-team race in the Eastern Conference as far as I'm concerned. So if it turns into an arms race, like both of those teams, I feel like could use upgrades at that position and could they get into a bidding war with each other and and try and get Chris Paul? Because I think 
he could really be a huge boon to both of them. Um, so yeah, those are the teams, I guess, Milwaukee, Orlando, uh, Philly, Milwaukee, Miami. Speaking of Orlando, <laughs> speaking of Orlando, uh, East burning question. Number four, will the magic swing a trade to balance their roster? This team has all the power forwards. They are log jammed in the front court and their back court, uh, is pretty flimsy. Although, you know, based on what we saw from Evan Fournier this morning, maybe not so much. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, going into the season with DJ Augustine as your starting point guard and Michael Carter-Williams and Markel Fultz as his backups. Man, I'm dry heaving in the studio right now just uh, listening to that. Yeah, for a team that I think you know has aspirations and could be pretty damn competitive, that's, that's a tough look. Um, so I think they, they should be looking to make a trade. I think they probably will be. And I kind of just think Aaron Gordon is by far the most likely candidate to be in such a trade. Given uh, his contract status, he's on a kind of mid-sized deal that declines in value. He is still a young player who I think might have some untapped upside. Super athletic, really solid defensively, and you know can score, I think, in a variety of ways. And like consistency is an issue. Efficiency is an issue. There are a lot of things he does well, but nothing that he does, you know, exceptionally well aside obviously from his incredible athleticism I don't know I think that's a guy who could fit on a lot of different teams and bring them back the kind of player that they might be looking for yeah the magic you know they locked in this kind of core from last season that had the what seven seed and did look pretty promising as the season wore on I still don't think they should have locked in this core the way they did. And I do think they need to make a trade just to balance things, not just for the season, but for the future. Like, we, How many years have we been talking about this now, that the, the Magic need to balance their roster like going <laughs> forward? Because they have 18 forwards. You know, They have more power forwards than are even allowed on a total roster <laughs> okay, in the NBA. Um, but yeah, Aaron Gordon's definitely their most tradable player mm-hmm. uh, as an asset to recoup value like that's a pretty manageable deal he's basically averaging about 18 million a year for the next three years for an above average young player that can do things defensively like still can't shoot but whatever no one's perfect i think if there's a trade to be made that is where it is it's aaron gordon but again the based on the way they committed to this core simply because well you got us to the playoffs you won 40 something games you know, what's to say that if this team isn't like a, the 60, the 5 or 60 next year, management just looks at it and ownership just looks at it as like, no, no, we're keeping the status quo. We're happy with this, right? And that, to me, might be the argument against this team actually making a trade. Well, that shouldn't be because... It shouldn't be, you're right. You know, if they're the 5th or the 6th seed, they should be looking at it and being like, oh, wow, if we get ourselves a real point guard, we might be the 3 seed. Right. And if, it, you know, if Gordon isn't the guy they want to move, I mean, last year when Mike Conley was on the block, I pitched... Mo Bamba and contract filler for Conley. I, I don't know with Bamba. I mean, obviously, it's a long-term project, and I feel like they drafted him knowing as much. They lock in Vucevic for four more years. So that is a long-term project because neither of the, like those guys are straight fives. You know, There's no positional versatility with either of them. He is absolutely blocked for at least the next three years. And... Knowing that, and knowing that, you know, presumably his trade value is going to decline in those three years because he's just not really going to have the opportunity, I don't think, to showcase his ability. Right now, you know, 
he's had one up and down rookie season, but he's still only a year removed from being the fifth overall pick. He has these unbelievably tantalizing tools. His size, his length are ridiculous. He probably has a lot of trade value around the league right now, and I think you have to worry maybe that that's not necessarily going to be the case a couple years down the road. Do you believe in him enough to hold on to him you know, throughout the length of Vucevic's contract? Or maybe, I mean, Vuce could, I guess, become that trade piece down the road, and, and maybe that's a reason to have locked him in. But I... I don't know. I think Bamba maybe could be an appealing trade chip for them. Yeah, I do believe in Mo Bamba defensive potential to be potent, like transcendent maybe, mm-hmm. but it is a long-term project. And when you've now made the moves the Magic have made in terms of financial commitments, you're kind of you're not going for it all the way, but you're kind of half in to compete in the short term. And given that, I think... Mobamba might be more useful to you as a trade chip than anything else right now because you're not going to see the fruits of his potential for at least two or three years and you know at its at its peak. And so can you turn Eric Aaron Gordon, uh Mobamba, like one of Ross or Forney, I don't know, a trap like can you turn that into a stud? You might be able to. Like that that's a pretty nice package of young talent. And if you can and all of a sudden you have insert star guard name with Nick Vucevic and Jonathan mm-hmm. Isaac in the East, like that team might be able to do something. Like I, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, I believe in a lot of the talent on this roster, and you know, I'm looking at potential targets. D'Angelo Russell is one that immediately jumps out to me. Not the first time I've said this, but I think a Gordon for Russell swap makes all kinds of sense for both teams. Lowry is another guy potentially if he becomes available, um, and Chris Paul as well. Uh, and then there's like smaller scale stuff where if it's not one of those upper echelon point guards, there's like Jeff T, Goran Dragic, Reggie Jackson. My, my only issue with those is like, at that point, you're literally just making the deal to balance the roster mm-hmm. positionally. And I don't think that's worth giving up a talent like Gordon. No, or I Bamba. don't think like, no, if you're getting like a Teague or a Dragic <laughs> or a Reggie Jackson, that Gordon's not right. in that deal. That's more like, I don't know, maybe you're sending out Fournier or maybe... But still Bamba? Like, not Bamba, right? No, no, no. No, oh, okay. no absolutely not. Yeah. This is like, you, you're just like, oh, we just need a point guard. Right. You know, a replacement level starting point guard, right. basically. And, you know, we'll just swap a salary for another. You know, and maybe maybe it's Fournier, maybe it's Terrence Ross even. But, I don't know, it's just clear to me. I, I think this team could be quite good. I, I just don't know if they can do it with the roster construction that they have now. Yeah, I agree. Back to you. Last last Burning West question. Kind of touched on it last week, but it, it still qualifies as a burning question because I think it's huge in the title conversation is when does Clay Thompson return to the Warriors and does he return at all this season? He suffered the injury in June. Obviously, he was in the finals. I mean, there's been examples of guys coming back from a torn ACL nowadays in about eight or nine months. If that's the case, that'd peg them at February, March. Um, you know, a year would obviously be the finals and then in that case, he just doesn't come back this year. But... I said it last week, I'll say it again. If Clay Thompson comes back, even in February, March, even April, and he's like just back for the playoffs and the Warriors, if the Warriors go into the playoffs with Curry, Clay, Draymond, and either D'Angelo Russell or whatever they turn D'Angelo Russell into, that team can still win a championship. I agree. Um, it's contingent on, you know, and we talked about this last week on what Clay Thompson looks like when he comes back, but. I do expect him to be back this season, you know, just given his history of recovering from injuries the way that he has. Uh, sometime after the All-Star break, 
you know, February, March. Um, I don't think like they're not going to rush him and they shouldn't. I guess, I don't know. There's this sort of tension here between this maybe being a transition year for the Warriors or just like a gap year, I guess. And then also looking at their roster and thinking like, how many more kicks at the can are we really going to have? Like how many more years of Steph Curry MVP level player are we going to have? How many more years of Draymond Green defensive player of the year level player are we going to have? Like, I don't know how many more chances they get. And, and maybe that is a reason to, to bring him back earlier than they might otherwise have done. Um, because they see this as an opportunity that they might not get in the future. Yeah. Right. And, and again, like, I agree with you with not rushing him back, but at the same time, if he's ready, he's ready, right? Like, right. you're not rushing him. If He's proven to be not just durable, but, like, weirdly... He's like, a, he's like a really high pain threshold, I Right, think. high pain threshold, but just seems to recover quicker, too. And, yeah. you know, obviously, right, they're not going to rush him back if it's just, like, a if he's saying he's ready, but he's not really ready, just mm-hmm. because he can take the pain. But if, you know, all the medical checks and balances he needs to clear are cleared and the images look good of his knee and and he's pain-free like they'll put him out there because he's ready and if that's the case and like i said if, if there's time left in the season they put him out there the warriors are absolutely going to be a factor and to me that's why this is one of the biggest burning questions to me because clay being back or not might literally be the difference between the five-time defending western conference champions being a championship contender and not being one yeah and i think the good thing for the warriors too is this is not a typical case of guy misses the first chunk of the season and then comes back and has to get acclimated and be worked back into the rotation. It's like, he'll be fine. You know, like Clay Thompson knows how to play with Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Steve Kerr knows how to utilize Clay Thompson. Like he'll fit back in seamlessly. I don't think they have to worry about that. So that's a bonus as well. Um, Final burning question in the Eastern Conference, very similar to your Chris Paul question, but I'll add a little bit of a twist on it. So first part of it is, where does Bradley Beal end up? And the second part of it is, does Bradley Beal help swing the title race? So so you, the first question is, where does he end up or yeah. does he get Okay, I, I'm assuming that he's going to get traded. I just don't see any way around it. The defending champion, Toronto Raptors. <laughs> Come on. Swing for the... Uh, I Look, I I think the Raptors are one of the teams that would be in a potential in the mix for Bradley Beal. If but what would they be giving up for him? Like, I don't, I don't like, think they're getting him without Siakam, and they're not putting Siakam on the table for Beal. I, I don't think they'd get... I do not think they would touch Siakam to, to get Beal. Like, if that's, Definitely not. But I don't know. Like, Does OG Anunoby have the breakout season? Some people expected of him last year, and if he does... You know, does a package centered around him and future picks maybe get it done? Like there, I think there is a path there. Yeah. Um, if the Raptors are good enough, because I think it would be like one of those types of teams. I like the teams that are already clearly in the title mix, whether it's the Clippers, the Lakers, even the Bucks and the Sixers in the East. I don't think there's necessarily a path for them to make that deal. And so I'm looking at like that next kind of tier that I think the Raptors are in. Um, and I look in the West, like, I, I don't know who's making that deal in the West. Like uh, Utah doesn't need a guard like that. I mean, Denver. We, we, yeah, we Denver. thrown that out there before Denver, as a potential Beal destination. I, Denver and Toronto, to me, might be like the, unless, again, I, I, like Orlando, maybe, mm, right? Yeah. It's not a sexy name, but Orlando's a team. Like, 
if it's Beal, Vucevic, and Isaac leading you into the playoffs, that might be enough in the East. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami? Yeah, always throwing out Miami. Right? Like, yeah. I, but they, I don't think they have the, the asset capital to get it done. Like, Yeah, so here's some teams that I have thought about, and I'll just... Obviously, the packages would be a lot broader than this in terms of the players that would be thrown in and also the draft picks. But these are the teams I'm thinking that have a kind of a player that could anchor a trade package that might be appetizing to Washington. So Brooklyn and Karis Levert would be the guy I think who would anchor that trade package. Denver with Gary Harris. Boston uh, with Jalen Brown. I don't think they would go as far as throwing Tatum in there. Miami with Bam. Um, Golden State with Russell. And uh, the Pelicans potentially with like some combination of Ingram, Ball, like, if they take off, if Zion takes off right away, I mean, throw Beal into that mix with Drew, Favors, Redick. Uh, like, that that team could compete right away. So I wouldn't exclude them from that mix. And then maybe the Clippers could get into the mix as well um, if Landry Shamit really pops. And then you kind of have a package with, like, him and Harrell and Lou Williams and... I don't know. I guess they don't really have any draft assets left to trade now, but uh, maybe they can find a way into that conversation if they want to create a big three with with Beal and PG and Kawhi. Yeah, I think Denver and New Orleans are probably the two that stick out to me the most. Maybe Orlando a little a little bit as well. And I I wasn't joking when I started with the Raptors. Like I really do think they'd be a team that would be in the mix for Beal if they're as competitive as as we both think they can be. You know. Yeah, and I I kind of hope they are. Like I just. As much as I've been critical in the past of how the last Pelicans front office sort of tried to hit the accelerator on their rebuild, I just think it would be super exciting if this team took off right away. And the great thing about Beal and what makes him such a tantalizing trade piece is his ability to just fit into multiple different timelines because he's already an all-star caliber player. He's still only 26. And even if the Pelicans aren't competing for a championship this year, if they're like a playoff team this year, I still think it's worth it to go and get him, try and extend him and keep him in the fold for the long term and have him be there as part of, you know, the, the Zion-led core. Agreed. Got any other uh, burning questions or burning statements to make before we get out of this freezer? <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think that covers it for now. All right, we'll just end very quickly. Yesterday, Fred McLeod, Cavs broadcaster for the last yeah. 13 years, formerly a Pistons broadcaster, passed away he was 67 just a quick note i mean we grew up in this era where whether it's the nba or another sport league pass whatever another sport used we've had options right like it's not just the local team we watch or the national teams we can basically watch any broadcast from all 30 markets and you kind of get to know broadcasters a little more and almost feel like you're part of it a little more than you would be you know 20 years ago and it was just those local broadcasts you got and Fred McLeod was one of the more unique voices that I think, you know, I think of New Orleans, I think of Cleveland and a couple other ones in terms of broadcast. And when I hear them, I'd be like, oh, that's the Cavs broadcast. That's the Pelicans broadcast, whatever. So yeah, he was unique voice, uh, unique calls, seemed to be good at his job and, you know, by all accounts, seemed like a good man. So rest in peace to him and condolences to the entire Cavs organization and his family. That was well said and I have nothing to add. Just, uh, yeah, tough day, obviously, for Cavs Nation, so... All right, we'll be back next week with some other sort of probably season preview content unless Mike Scott gets in another fight in Philly. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.